Throughout the Advent season, we have been looking at the person, ministry, and work of John the Baptist. And we're going to bring that to a conclusion this, evening, this morning by looking at uh, the end of John's life. It's told in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The words are on the screen behind me, or if you'd like to follow along, you can do so in your pew Bibles on page number 974. Again, page 974, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The scriptures say, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, yesterday when we were here for Christmas, I began the message by getting us to think about our wants and our needs. Things that fall into the category of hopes and dreams, something certainly appropriate for the joy of Christmas Day. Well, today, while I take the same kind of questions, instead of focusing on the positive side, we kind of flip that to the negative. What fears do you live with? What are the things that keep you up at night and occupy your mind with anxiety and worry? Maybe it's relationships that you are involved with or where they are headed and what they will do and how you can resolve conflict. Maybe it's financial concerns and worries about where the money is going to come from. And maybe you overextended yourself during this Christmas season. Maybe it's about decisions that have to be made and they're weighing heavily on your mind. Or maybe, as it is for many, our great fear is death. When will death come? What will it be like? Will it be quick and unexpected or long and drawn out and painful? And and when that day comes, will I be ready? Will my family and loved ones be ready to deal with life without my presence? And most importantly, maybe, what will this have all meant? The life that I have, will I be happy with how I lived it? And will the things that I gave myself be worth it all? 
And in those big questions that we ask, we fear and we worry. I'll confess that this is a hard move to make from the celebrated joy of, of Christmas, that newborn Christ in a manger, the Lamb of God and the hope that he brought, to looking at the depths of human depravity exposed in this text that we read for this morning. In fact, our children's bulletin author was asking me, what are you up to this Sunday? Because this is one of those texts that doesn't really lend itself very well to children's bulletin material. But the Bible is never shy about the fact that even after the coming of Christ, as we mentioned last week, not all of our problems are immediately solved and go away. Trials and struggles still come, and in fact, is often the case that when people give their lives in faith to Jesus Christ, that new and increased struggles and trials are added to their life. Because the world has always hated the holy. And that's the case in this glimpse that we get at the end of John the Baptist's life. A necessary part to conclude our Advent series. I gave a little bit of a background to the story about how John ended up in prison last Sunday, but let me flesh that out just a little bit more. For the original audience, as soon as they heard mention of Herod the Tetrarch, the man named at the beginning of this text, the one assigned as the Jewish ruler of the region under the authority of the Roman Empire, they would have immediately known, oh, this family. And they would have been well aware of all of the struggles and complications and issues related to this odd and weird uh, royal family. Now to begin with, when it mentions Herod, many people are familiar with that name from the Christmas story. They remember how when the wise men saw that star, they went to Jerusalem first and they asked Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? And Herod looked and sent them on their way to Bethlehem, but in being concerned about this new child that he wasn't aware of, a threat to his power, he decided that he was going to kill all males two years old and younger doing the same thing that he had done to two of his sons, worried about their threat to his power, he murdered them in order to make sure that no one would be able to take away his authority. That Herod actually is a different Herod from the one that we just read about in Scripture. That was this Herod's dad. He was known as Herod the Great. He was a great builder, but he was not a great person. And it was shortly after the birth of Jesus when he died, allowing Jesus to return from Egypt back to Nazareth to be raised. This Herod, the Tetrarch that we read about in our text, was that Herod's son. So after Herod the Great died, he divided, his kingdom was divided up among three of his children. Herod Antipas, known as Herod the Tetrarch in our text, Philip and Archelaus. And each one of those covered a different region. And because Herod Antipas reigned over one quarter, one fourth of that kingdom, he was known as Herod the Tetrarch. And with this family, 
he was also drunk on power and didn't like to have people tell him what to do. They wanted to do whatever they could. And as I alluded to last week, Herod the Tetrarch was married to his first wife. It was an arranged marriage by his father for political gain. But apparently he didn't love his wife very much. And one day when visiting his half-brother Philip I, he fell in love with Philip's wife. And though she was married to his half-brother and he was married to someone else, he proposed to her. They both divorced their first spouses and got married to each other. Uh, This wife was named Herodias, by the way, a niece to both her first and now second husband. And for many obvious reasons, that was not a legitimate relationship. And as we learn in our text, the popular and righteous prophet, John the Baptist, was willing to confront that. And he said to the reigning Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. And John should be commended for his righteous stand. How often do we recognize that someone's doing something foolish, wrong, and sinful, but not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to step on anyone's toes, knowing that when people are often confronted in their sin, they respond by being offended that you would point that out. John doesn't worry about that. And he identifies and calls out the sin of this Jewish leader. Well, like many others, Herod didn't like being told that what he was doing was wrong. And so he imprisons John. But because John was popular, well-known, and well-liked, even though Herod would have loved to just gotten rid of him, he keeps him alive because he fears the crowd and he wanted to keep the peace. But fast forward to Herod's birthday party. During the party, Herod's wife Herodias' daughter dances for Herod. Now again, the people of the time when they hear of Herodias' daughter would have identified and known who this person was. And from extra biblical sources, we can identify this as Salome. As for some more context for her, later on in her life... Salome would grow up and she would get married to Herod's brother, Philip the Tetrarch. And as one source put it, in that one move, Salome became her mother's aunt and sister-in-law in the same moment. It, had a, it took a long time for me to figure out these complex, awful relationships. But are you getting a glimpse of the depravity of this family? Well, back to the party, talking about depravity. At the time, Salome would have been somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. But as you would probably guess, the dance that she danced for Herod was very likely a completely inappropriate dance, especially for someone of that age. But it pleased Herod. And in response to it pleasing his guilty flesh, he decides that he was going to do something foolish and he promises Salome to give her whatever she might ask. Well, when her mother hears about that offer, she prompts her daughter to ask for an opportunity to get revenge against that prophet. 
that person that would dare to tell her that her desires and her love was unacceptable and wrong. And to get revenge on him, she prompts her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And because he had made an oath, and of all of the things, didn't want to be seen as someone who doesn't keep his word, Herod follows through. And immediately he goes to the prison where John's head is taken and his life is ended. Now, this move must have disturbed Herod a little bit. And I say that because of how our passage begins this morning. Later on, when Herod hears about Jesus, this other prophet who was doing miracles and gaining the attention of the crowd, he worries that this is John the Baptist come back to life, revealing that though he was Jewish by birth, he shares in some strange ideas about religion, thinking that the spirit of John the Baptist had somehow been transferred to this new prophet named Jesus, and therefore he too might be a threat to Herod's life and torment him. Now again, I realize that a lot of this sounds like a a gossip magazine review, and it does highlight some of the depths of human depravity and sin, the lengths that people will go to to indulge their flesh. But quite frankly, what we should just see is this is a sad story. Israel had longed for a prophet to come for hundreds of years before John to know the word of the Lord and how he was calling them to be directed in this new and and current time that they were living in. And, And when John finally arrived and came, he was a good and faithful man. If I would have continued reading in the text that we looked at last week from Matthew 11, Jesus went on to describe John by saying, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. High praise from Jesus. He had the honor of baptizing the Messiah. He identified him to others, and yet... In giving a proper rebuke to someone like Herod, his ministry was cut short and his life was ended in an awful way. And quite frankly, there isn't a lot of hope and redemption offered in this particular passage. It's just a a bit of a historical aside from Matthew explaining what happened to this great prophet that we had heard about earlier. And, And it just kind of gives the detail in all of its gore and all of its blunt reality without really supporting that there was much of a purpose or a meaning to it all. But in looking at this text, especially this morning, you realize that in some kind of odd way, this too also helped to prepare the way for the Lord. I say that because in watching John the Baptist go through this scenario with Herod, we see a pattern that will very much be repeated by Jesus. Not that long after this, John will also start to be, I'm sorry, Jesus will also start to be perceived as a threat to those who had a certain amount of power in this area. 
And because of that threat, they too would look for ways to eliminate him, to take him off of the scene, to shut his voice up, and to keep him silenced. And with others, after Jesus is arrested, he would go and he would stand before this very same wicked Herod the Tetrarch. And that Herod would initially be excited because in hearing about Jesus, he wanted to see him come and perform some kind of sign, some kind of magic trick in front of him so that he could marvel at who this Jesus was. But when Jesus remains silent, instead of marveling at him, Herod mocks him. He gets his soldiers to beat him and he sends Jesus back to Pilate, forming a friendship, we are told, with Pilate that would last. And like John, although Jesus was completely innocent of any crime and wrongdoing, in order to please the crowds and to keep the peace, they sent him to a cross where he was executed in one of the most awful and torturous methods of capital punishment ever designed by human ingenuity. And Jesus, too, was put to death. And his death was also sad and tragic. A great prophet killed far too young. Except this time, death would not have the final word. On the third day, that tomb would be empty. And Jesus would rise victorious over death and over all of the consequences of sin. And his victory over death redeemed all of those that had died and would die in service to the kingdom of the Lord. He would become the first fruits of the resurrection. And because of what Jesus did, all of us have hope beyond the grave. For those that put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the great promise is that death is not the greatest thing to be feared. That as many have, we can recognize that people can and will attack and try to harm and destroy the body. But for those that put their faith in Christ, they never can harm the soul. And that death in this life is just a pathway to eternal life that awaits us in glory. You see, this whole Advent season is and has been about waiting for the coming of Christ. We look back and we celebrate his first coming. And that gives us confidence as we live in expectation for his promised return. And as we wait we are called as we have been called to be prepared for that return by living in hope and expectation. By repenting of those things that would prevent us and harm our relationship with Jesus. By prioritizing that relationship and pointing others to the Christ where they can find hope. By enduring and going to Jesus with our questions, but mostly by recognizing and receiving him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But again, the Bible is always honest about the fact that just because Jesus came and we have received him, that 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 does not mean life will now forever be easy. In fact, most of the New Testament was written to Christians that were suffering because of their faith. They were being persecuted, attacked, imprisoned, and killed because they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And the truth of the matter is, 
is that wait for the return of Jesus has been a very long one. And in that wait, the church has seen a lot of persecution. It has gone through a lot of suffering, and every believer in Jesus so far has died waiting for Jesus. And it's likely that most, if not all of us, will also do the same. But the continued message of the Bible throughout all of that is stand firm and have hope. To recognize that the sinful world is going to attack. It is going to challenge those who have faith. It is going to do all that they can to silence and marginalize and oppress. And if that doesn't work, to kill and remove those who do have hope. They're trying to shut down the message. But be encouraged. The world does not have the final say. Death is not the victor, but Jesus is. Sadly, John the Baptist never got to live long enough to see the benefits and the fulfillment of the kingdom that he proclaimed and prepared people for. But we have. And because of that, we can live with that same type of confidence or with an increased amount of confidence. I started this message suggesting that we think about and look at some of our fears. The opposite of fear is that wonderful word comfort. And as I thought about that, I couldn't help but think of our Heidelberg Catechism and its first question and answer when it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? In a world full of struggle and opposition and trials and burdens, where do you find relief, comfort, and security from all of those fears? And it's not to be found in our finances. Surrounding ourselves with enough money to provide comfortable homes and a comfortable living. It's not in earning the praise of people and never stepping on anyone's toes or not offending anyone or ever making them angry in the things that you say or recognize in their lives. It's not about living with great experiences and and having wonderful relationships with people. No, as the catechism says, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Today is not only the Sunday that follows after Christmas Day, but it's also the last Sunday in this calendar year. And as often is the case, the change in the calendar year is a wonderful opportunity to reflect upon our lives, to reevaluate where we've been and to think about where we are going. And we're going to spend some time doing that on Friday, but I encourage you to think about that this morning as well. And as I encourage you to think about that in light of the text that we read, let me just encourage you to think about and, and, and do a couple of things. First and foremost, recognize that in this life, the greatest thing to fear is not death, but it's living a meaningless life and it's dying without knowing Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If you do those things, you have no hope. 
And not only is this life going to be a constant struggle as you kick against all of God's commands and try to do things according to your will, to your will and your ways to live according to pleasure or your own heart's desires that has always led to disaster and emptiness. And after this life, the only thing that would await those who deny Jesus is an eternity of torment. But we have hope. Emmanuel has come. And the encouragement is, if you've never known for certain that you've given your life to Jesus Christ, do so today. That is is what will give your life meaning and purpose. That is where you can find comfort. That is our only hope in life and in death. So surrender to your life to Jesus. And be clear, that's not just an intellectual activity, a one-time thing. And that's where the second encouragement is, that if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, live your life for him and for his kingdom. And that's a whole nother level. Because in this world, that means you will invite criticism. You will have people look at you strangely. They'll wonder why you do and don't do certain things. And if you criticize them or ask questions about what they're doing, they will challenge you and they will not like being told that they are not right with the Lord. But that's not a life to be feared. That's a life with meaning and purpose, and that's the kind of life that the servants of Jesus are called to live. And so if you do want a life with meaning, live for the kingdom of Christ. Use the days that you have and every opportunity to spread the good news of the hope that has come and that you've received. There's a lot of tragedy in this world. We see it. In this dark story that we just read. But again, thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, he's given us the answer and the hope that we need. May we not only receive that hope, but live in light of that hope. Toward that end, will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we read the stories of those who completely have indulged in their sin. The sad reality is that many of us understand exactly where they are coming from because we have done the same thing. That though we know your laws, your wills, and your way, we have disobeyed them. And we've preferred our desires to your commands. And for that, Lord, we confess and we ask for your forgiveness But that is where we thank you that you have given us hope. That where we are unable to to fix what we have broken, you came in Jesus Christ to, to heal and to restore. And in the shedding of your blood and your victorious rising from the grave, you won for us comfort, hope, and eternal security. Lord, may we not only receive that message this morning, but may we live in light of it. May we go forth from this place into a whole new year with a renewed dedication to serve you, to live for you in all that we do, despite how the world might receive us. May our first and foremost desire be to continue to give you glory and to elevate your holy name. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.